Hi, welcome to Cochrane Alliance Church and our online sermons. We are so glad you are able to join us. We pray that this sermon will be a blessing and an encouragement to you this week. Let's pray this morning uh, as we come into uh, the message. You can uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be able to come together. I think we say this nearly every Sunday. We are grateful to be together in your presence. We are grateful to be bound together in faith by your spirit. And I pray that in this place today, Father, that we would sense and know your presence and your spirit with us. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us this morning, uh, to inform us, to instruct us, to encourage us, and even convict us. That's what we are here for. And uh, Lord Jesus, as we sang in that last song, it's, it's so easy to become fixated on the things of this world. And yet we want to be reminded that you are our one thing. You are the only one who can save. You are the only one who can promise eternal life. You are the only one who can forgive us of our sins and wash us clean. And so, Lord Jesus, we want to acknowledge that today, that you are, you are the King of kings. Your kingdom is greater than any kingdom. And so help us today to keep our eyes fixated upon you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I think one of the hardest things to do in life, and I don't think I'm alone in this, I think this kind of transcends me, I think the hardest, one of the hardest things to do in life is to keep our priorities straight, especially in our culture. We live in a really materialistic, consumeristic, individualistic culture, and so keeping our priorities right, I think, is really difficult. I think most of us struggle in our culture to understand what is of real importance and real value, given all that materialism and consumerism that we live in. And furthermore, I, I think sometimes we struggle, like how do we even determine what it is that we truly value, what it is that we prioritize in our life? And sometimes we're just not good at self-analysis because we're so busy running from this thing to that thing to doing this and going here and planning for this. And we go, you know, what is it that we truly value? I think sometimes we know the words that we ought to say, but sometimes our actions don't back up what we say. And so I think a good way to self-analyze what we truly value and what we truly prioritize is to check where we spend most of our time and where we spend most of our money. So there's an interesting story that after the Duke of Wellington defeated Napoleon in the Battle of Waterloo, that there were, you know, everyone was like, wow, the Duke of Wellington's this awesome dude, and so everyone wanted to write biographies of his life. And there was about a dozen biographies written about his life. And you're like, man, 12 biographies, how much more can there be to be said? But one author came out and said, I'm going to have the most in-depth biography on the Duke that has ever been written. And people said, well, how could that be? There's already been about a dozen of these things written. How are you going to have anything new to say? And this author said that he had found the Duke's financial account books. And that biographer knew that if he could see where the Duke spent his money, he could find out a lot more about the man, what he truly valued and what he truly loved. And I think that this is true of anyone, where we spend our money and where we spend our time in our culture reveals much about who we are and what we love. Pastor Rick Warren has said this, here's how you know what's really important to people. Look at their calendar and look at their bank statement. The way we spend our time and the way we spend our money says what's really important to us. 
So as we're continuing our study in the parable of Jesus, we find that Jesus is often challenging us to rethink our priorities and our values. And if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember Jesus says things there as well that sort of challenge us, where he says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal, but store your treasure in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Now, of course, Jesus is talking about money and possessions in this passage. And at the end of this portion, he says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Or maybe the word best there is mammon. So Jesus is certainly talking about money in this passage, and he's challenging our priorities. Do we see storing treasure on earth as more important, or do we have an eye on eternity? And I think when it comes to money, we have a very limited view of it. We either want to watch it grow in the bank, or we want to spend it on things that we desire. Either way, we're storing it on earth, where it really doesn't do a whole lot for us in the eternal scope of things. And we neglect to think about how our resources might be used for things that have eternal significance. And so although Jesus is clearly talking about money and possessions in this portion of of the Sermon on the Mount, I think we can extrapolate these things to include how we use our time, how we use the gifts that we've been given, either the spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit or simply our natural God-given talents and abilities. And how we use our gifts, our time, our skills, and our money matter, not only in this life, but also they have eternal implications. And I think that's one of the things that we so often forget is that, yeah, we can do things in this life and some of it is of really good value. And if it's a good work that we were called to do, then that actually has eternal value, eternal implications. And so Jesus is actually making a point that this present life is not all that there is. There is an eternal life to come that we should be thinking more about. And in addition to eternal life, Jesus says that we can store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And so I think our desire is sometimes in this life to have nicer cars, better vacations, more entertainment, seem a little bit silly when Jesus says the work you do on this earth leads to reward in eternity. The passage from the Sermon on the Mount that I just read is not the only place where Scripture talks about rewards in heaven. If we go back to the Beatitudes at the top of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is talking about persecution, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you and say all kinds of evil things about you because of me. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And I think so often that, you know, in a culture that is maybe moving post-Christian, that is sort of pushing back on Christian values, you know, and and sort of making a mockery sometimes of the Christian faith, you know, we want to kind of fight back and, and stand firm, and how dare they talk to us about that. But I think if we remembered that great is the reward in heaven for those who speak badly about you because of me, we'd say this, 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 I have a reward in heaven here. This life isn't all there is. And it would make us a lot more gracious in our response. And then there's another place in response to a man who's unhappy about his brother receiving an inheritance. And he wants Jesus to mediate it. And this is going to be part of our passage today. But I'm kind of jumping forward a little bit. At the end of our passage today, Jesus tells this man who's upset with his brother, who's not dealing fairly with him in in divvying up the inheritance. He tells the man in the crowd listening this. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. 
And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. And hearkening back to the Sermon on the Mount, no thief can steal, no moth can destroy. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And so Jesus right now is linking some very physical things. Sell your possessions, give away your money, then you have reward in heaven. And I know I, I always, you know, every time you preach on this in our modernistic, consumeristic, materialistic culture, you always want to water it down. Well, he doesn't mean all that. Like, yeah, I don't know, he just says it. He says sell it all. So let's not take the extreme words of Jesus and water them down. Like, let's just let them sit. And let's just, like, wrestle with that a little bit. That's a hard thing. What is, what is that saying to us? And there's one other place where we talk about reward in heaven, and it's kind of a weird one. The Apostle Paul tells us that believers will have their work, the work that they did on earth, judged by fire. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he says, if what they did on earth survives the fire of judgment, they receive a reward. But if the work that they did on earth is, is of no eternal value, then the work is actually burnt. And he says they'll be saved, but only as one passing through flames. And I don't know what that means. But I've always kind of thought to be saved as one passing through flames doesn't sound awesome. And so I'd rather, again, so Jesus is always refocusing us. Remember the life that is to come. Remember the life that is to come. You, you belong to that kingdom. You don't belong to this world. And the things of this world are going to pull your eyes away from the things of heaven. And there's work to be done here that will have lasting, eternal value. And we need to focus a little bit more on that. And so... I don't know how much you think about eternal rewards. I don't, I don't almost ever think about eternal rewards. And I find that I get so wrapped up in the things that I want in this life that I can easily forget there's another life to come. And I forget that what I do in my life here carries weight for eternity. That's a hard one to wrap your mind around. That what you do here carries weight into eternity. And so whenever I actually do think about this, which isn't very often, but when I do, I've identified with what C.S. Lewis wrote when he said, if we consider the promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. And I think that that is the problem right there. We are so often fixated on finding pleasure and delight in this present life, so focused on making sure our desires right here and right now are gratified, that we forget about the promise of eternal life to come. And in many ways, I find in a culture that can give us nearly anything we want, if you just have enough money for it, it's easy in that type of culture to say we believe in life eternal, but live as though this life is all that matters. And you know, it's not that having a nice home or going on a nice vacation is wrong, but if we're living only for those things, if the purpose of our present life becomes reduced to simply having the most fun now, the most money now, the nicest home here, well, then we've got our priorities out of order. 
And if I was to name it, if I was to use a scriptural term to say, what is it when your priorities are out of order in this way? Uh, The word for that is greed. On a very basic level, greed is simply a continual thirst for more. And it's a continual thirst for more of something that ultimately isn't good for you or ultimately never actually brings you the satisfaction that you want it to. And it doesn't actually have to be money. Some people are greedy for relationships, sexual encounters. Others are greedy for possessions. And so that's sort of a wealth thing. But instead of watching the money rise up in the bank, they're buying all sorts of cool vehicles and sea-dews and boats and whatever else, right? Thinking that more of these things will satisfy them. But it's kind of like drinking salt water. You drink it because you're thirsty and it's there, but drinking salt water just makes you thirstier. And what you find with people who acquire wealth and use their wealth to simply get more for themselves is they just need to keep doing more of that. It's like it's a never-ending pit of, well, this may be this. Maybe we'll go and do this. Maybe we'll go and have this thing and, and we'll do this. And it just they have to keep chasing more of it. So that's greed at its most basic level. And if we dig just a little bit deeper under the surface of of this thing we call greed, we find that greed is really idolatry. And idolatry is usually thought to be worshiping some statue in the jungle or in the desert somewhere, jumping around and chanting strange things or bowing down to an idol. But idolatry simply means worshiping something or someone other than God. That's a picture I took when I was in India. I was walking down the steps to the river in Varanasi, and so I wasn't really sure if I was supposed to be taking photos, but I had my camera like this, and so that's why it's sort of like a weird photo. I kind of like snapped it like this to not be rude, but I wanted to get this picture because here's the priests putting the lays on the the idols that they're going to be bowing down to and worshiping, and uh, there's thousands of people now gathering on the steps. And so I think sometimes, you know, when I was in India, we saw this. We saw a whole group of people. Those priests then led, you know, about an hour-long ceremony. And there was people bowing to the idols, and there was people chanting uh, to the idols. And, and, you know, the group came out of that, and they said, wow, that was so weird and dark, and there were spiritual things happening. And, and I agreed. But I wanted to push back a little and say, what about the idols in our culture? I think we have temples and idols in our culture, we just don't call them that. And they don't look like that. But in our culture, which is a materialistic, consumeristic, individualistic culture, our modern day temples and idols probably look something more like this. And if you're uh, listening on the podcast later, it's a picture of a shopping mall. It's a nice looking shopping mall. That's that's Chinook Center, I think. Yeah, that's Chinook Mall. Um, and so that was, that was what I was pushing back on. I said, I, I think we actually have an idol problem in our culture. It's just we accept it. It looks normal. It doesn't look as strange and weird, but I think we have it. And so I think we can see how greed can turn a person into an idol worshiper, right? Because a person can worship money or luxury or possessions or travel or sex or any number of things. Greed is idolatry, though. And Scripture confirms that. Ephesians 5, 5, Paul says a greedy person is an idolater because they worship the things of this world, the things you can acquire. And in Colossians 3, 5, he says basically the same thing. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. And I think we have such a hard time even seeing greed within ourselves because we so often think it just has to do with an obsession for wealth. You know, we go, well, a billionaire might be greedy. A millionaire might be greedy. But what we see throughout Scripture is that greed is not always just an excessive desire for wealth. 
Greed is really a matter of priorities. If serving God or giving to God is low on your list of priorities because you just want to be enjoying your life now, you probably have an issue with greed. And again, not that all the things that we have in this life are bad in and of themselves, right? I love taking great vacations with my family, and they're valuable. It's valuable to take a vacation with your family if you can do it. (laughs) But I don't know about you, and maybe I'm weird like this, but I do think when I'm taking my family on an awesome vacation, I think about the thousands of kids living in a garbage dump in South Sudan. And their entire life is going to be lived in that garbage dump. And if you were to say, hey, do you ever take a vacation? Do your parents ever take you out to, uh, to the amusement park? They go, no, if I don't find some like, decent shoes in the garbage dump that I can sell for a little bit of money, I don't eat. And that's what I do every single day. And so suddenly these things are bad in and of themselves, right? And, and you need to, you know, in our society, we have to plan for retirement. It's okay to have investments and, and have money, you know, there because you do, you will need it. You know, you still have this life to live. But the point that I'm making is that you don't want to neglect God because of these desires. If I stop serving God or if I stop giving to what God wants because I'm too busy pursuing my own pleasures, then my priorities are out of whack and I have an issue with greed. If my mind becomes fixed on earthly things without ever a thought to heavenly things in the kingdom of God, then greed has gripped my heart. You know, if I feel God calling to me to give to a missions organization or to give to a person in need, but I decline that call because I'm like, well, you know, we're saving up for a trip to Disneyland, then you've real, I've really got a question. Are my priorities right? So going back to this man that I mentioned earlier who was worried about his brother who didn't divide his inheritance with him, and he says, Jesus, tell my brother to give me my fair share of the inheritance. Jesus says this. And this is where we come into our parable. He begins like this, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Here's what I notice when I read the first part of this passage before we get to the you fool part. In our culture, what this man did is not anything we would consider wrong. He was smart and his land was good. So he simply wanted to increase production increased storage so he can retire from work a little bit early and enjoy his life. Is that not the Canadian dream? The American dream? Make enough money so you can retire at 55 and enjoy your life and travel around and do whatever you want to do, eat, drink, and be merry? Is that not sort of the, the general call of the culture? He didn't do anything that we necessarily would think is wrong. It's hard, I think, for us to see the issue here, but God calls this man a fool. And God doesn't throw words around lightly like we sometimes do. If God calls someone a fool, then I, you know, that's what they are. And if someone is called a fool in the scriptures, it usually means they lack awareness of God. So basically, a fool is someone who makes choices as if God doesn't exist. And so with that in mind, let's follow the flow of this man's thinking. 
He says, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and I'll have room to store everything and I'll sit back and say to myself, so what is this man fixated on? Himself. The man is completely self-absorbed. His priority is only on making more money so he can, and more production so he can sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. So what would God have this man do so that he could store up treasure in heaven? What is it that God would want this man to do? Well, God is a God of justice, mercy, and compassion. He's a father to the fatherless, the provider of widows, uh, for widows and orphans. So instead of this man building bigger barns so he can retire early, perhaps he could use his wealth to make sure people in his community are looked after. He could say, I'm going to increase production, and when I increase production, I'm going to make sure that every orphan and widow in this village is looked after. I love it when I hear stories about that. You know, there's certain like basketball players who've like basically funded 2,000 kids to go off to college because like, well, what am I going to do with $100 million? That's a way you can use your wealth that is still rich towards God. He could expand his farm and keep people employed and, and keep people looked after. And if he used his wealth to care for others, then he would be in line with God's heart and that would store up for him treasure in heaven. But this man does not think of God or others at all. And, and notice this, he doesn't even give God thanks for, like, he's a farmer. So, like, there's a lot of things when you're a farmer that are not in your control. He didn't control the rainfall that led to his crops growing. He doesn't control the quality of the soil in his land. He didn't control whether pests came in to eat his crops or not. But he doesn't, he's like, oh, look at how great I am. Look at this thing I built. I'm a great, awesome dude. But it's really like, you got to give God thanks for all that he's given you. But you notice that it's all about him, what he has, what he can do, and how well he can live his own life. It's, it's his priorities are out of order. First, give thanks to God. And this is exactly why God calls him a fool and why Jesus says, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up riches for himself but is not rich towards God. And the problem, again, really comes down to priorities. The man was only thinking of himself. He was not rich towards God. And just to be clear, if I wasn't before, being rich towards God often means caring about who and what God cares about. So that means using your gifts, your time, your wealth, your talents to care for the people that God cares about. Your neighbors, your brothers and sisters in Christ, the poor, the sick, the lonely, the isolated, looking after them, spending time with them, using your gifts to serve them is how we can be rich towards God. And I think we tend to forget that we are called to a higher purpose than to just live the good life now. We are the children of God, we are co-heirs with Christ, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. That's all that is true of us. So we are privileged to serve God's kingdom and his purposes while we live life on this earth. And as we live the Christian life here, the natural outcome will be the storing up of rewards in heaven. So how exactly do we store up treasures for ourselves in heaven? Well, the first thing, as you may have guessed, is to keep our priorities right. And how do you keep your priorities right? You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and the things of heaven. And that allows us to hear what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do and allows us to obey what Jesus has planned for us. And again, too often, I think, in this life, we get easily distracted. We're far too easily pleased. And we can go through this life as if the goal of this life is to please ourselves. We forget that Scripture tells us that we are God's masterpiece that he's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us from long ago. And so what that tells us is that there's more to this life than just pleasing ourselves, 
because we belong to a kingdom that has work for us to do. We are ambassadors of that kingdom, priests of that kingdom, workers in that kingdom. And so as we read the New Testament, there's another theme that's repeated over and over again. There's this idea in the letters of the New Testament that we are to view our Christian life as a race, that we have a goal, that we have a task in front of us. So how do we run the Christian life, this race, well? Again, keep your priorities right. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, Since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. And how do we do this? By keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. And if our eyes are on Jesus and the things of heaven, then the Spirit of God empowers us to run the race well, to do the good work we are created in Christ to do. And so as we come to the ending of the sermon here, here's the biggest question that we need answered. What does it actually look like to store up treasures in heaven? What does it actually look like to store up treasures in heaven? Well, first of all, we we are told in Scripture that we store up treasure or we receive a reward in eternity when we do the good work that we were created to do. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 8, the Lord will reward each one of us for the good that we do. So that we can add to that question, what is the good that we are to do? Now, here's one thing I can tell you. I can't tell you every single thing that God wants you to do because that's very specific to you, to the way God's wired you, to the way he's gifted you, to what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do. You've got to fix your eyes on Jesus, listen to the Holy Spirit to know what it is specifically God is wanting you to do. But There are some good works that Scripture indicates are universal for all believers. And as we close here today, I just want to highlight three of them. So one of the things that we probably, if you're a believer in Jesus, that you know you ought to be ready to do is to share the hope you have in Christ whenever you are asked about it and to live such good lives amongst our neighbors and our community that they feel compelled to ask. The people that we interact with, where we're used by the Spirit of God to to either further them in their journey of faith or, you know, kind of get them to that place of, of accepting Christ as the Savior, that's part of the heavenly reward. There's this fascinating thing the Apostle Paul says to the church in Thessalonica. He says to them, to the people, he says, what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. So what Paul is saying is my, part of my crown, part of my reward is just you. It's you. I get to be in eternity with you. That's a part of that heavenly Reward. So making the most of every opportunity to share your faith is storing up treasure in heaven, specifically the people who might come to faith because you were part of that story. And I'm not saying you've got to like, sometimes you're like, we've got to seal the deal then. No, just listen to the Holy Spirit. Say what needs to be said when the Spirit prompts you to say it. And you might go, boy, I don't know if that had any effect at all. But won't it be a joy when you enter eternity And some person that looks vaguely familiar is in eternity with you and they come to you and they say, when I was wherever, and you said to me, whatever, you might have thought it made no difference, but that started my journey of faith and here I am. And there's going to be a whole crowd of witnesses saying, and I said this and I did that and and we brought them to faith. And won't that be cool? Will you not celebrate? And that will be a part of your reward. There's two other things I just want to touch on that Jesus tells us to do that are part of this work we are created anew to do. 
One is being involved in the physical needs of the people around us. Here's something that I always, you might have got this already, but here's something I always want to do. Too often we have this fixation on, on the spiritual, and we neglect the physical needs of people. And I go, when I see what Jesus does, he looks after the spiritual needs of people and the physical needs of people. He doesn't say this one, not this one. He, kind of, he just does them both. We had a debate one time in a missions class. What's more important, the spiritual needs of people or the physical needs of people? And I'm like, I don't know. But I think both. I don't know why this is a debate. It's both. Jesus did both. And Jesus tells us this crazy thing that is so hard to read, but I, I need to read it. Jesus talks about, like, the judgment on the last day. And he says, the king, that's Jesus, will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Why? Because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And the righteous will say, when did we ever see you in any of these ways? And Jesus the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And the part that I left out is he says, if you didn't, you have no part of me. If you didn't feed the poor, if you didn't care for the orphan and the widow, you have no part of me. And I always link that to another place in Luke where Jesus says, there's going to be those who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not do all these amazing things in your name? And he's like, I didn't know you. Why didn't he know them? He says, because when you do these things for the least of these, you do it to me. I'll know you. Not just by the great spiritual things you accomplish, but by the real help you give to real people. And so I think I just never want to neglect that part of it. Because I think there's a tendency to go, okay, well, we do our, you know, we said our nice little words. And James would push back on that as well, the book of James. But okay, and finally, the last one. This is a hard one too, but it needs to be said. There's rewards for those who love their enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to repaid, repaid. Then your reward will be very great. Then you will be truly acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. And again, I just think that's a hard one to do. We, we kind of feel like we have the right, you know, to say so. We think someone's an enemy of the faith or an enemy of, of God or an enemy of Christianity, and we think we got to make a stand. We can kind of say hurtful or demeaning things to them, or we can ignore them, or we can, like... And God's like, no, if you want reward in heaven, you've got to love those people. God loves them. So if, if God can love them, <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? That's a hard one, right? But he, but he actually links loving your enemies to rewards in heaven. And once again, I think that this is so instructive for us, that if we can love our enemies well, knowing that it leads to reward in heaven, it makes it a lot easier to do it. I'm doing this because this has eternal implications. Loving this person well might mean that they come to saving faith. Loving this person well might mean that they think of Jesus more often. Loving this person well when they don't deserve it might just be the step they need to come into faith. And the goal is not to crush your enemy. That wasn't God's goal. That's not Christ's goal. His goal isn't to crush his enemies. His goal is to redeem them and save them. To love them so much that they receive the grace of salvation. And so, just as we're closing here, I want to give two words of advice. First of all, when we talk about eternal rewards, we're not talking about salvation or the gift of eternal life. It's really clear in Scripture you can't work or earn your way to salvation. Paul says it's not, it's, he says it's only by grace you've been saved, through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. It's not by your works so no one can boast. 
And secondly, you might hear the words of Jesus about storing up treasure in heaven and think, oh man, I've got to work really hard and I've got to live a miserable life to store up treasure in heaven. You know, perhaps you're feeling like you're not working hard enough or you're not sacrificing enough. And hey, I mean, I suppose that might be true. But I also know that the Christian life is meant to be a life of peace and joy and light. And Jesus tells us that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. And we're to come to Jesus when we are weary and burdened to find rest and not a heavier burden. And so what I'm saying is this. We'll run the race well. We'll do what we've been created to do. We'll follow the Spirit's leading if we're first attentive to sitting at the feet of Jesus. Learning from him, being filled and satisfied on the bread of life and the living water. Jesus tells us that we'll produce fruit if we remain in him. He is the true vine and we are the branches. So don't work hard to get heavenly rewards. Work hard to deepen your relationship with Jesus. And then you'll do the work you were called to do with joy, with humility, with perseverance. If you spend more time sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning his ways and hearing his voice. I'm going to call the worship team up. And just to kind of reiterate that, one of the worst things I've seen in church is Christians who have no joy in their faith, no joy in their relationship with Jesus, because what they believe is that Jesus mostly wants their service. So they work hard, and they give lots, and they burn themselves out. But there's no joy, there's no peace, and there's often no humility or grace displayed. And if they had first realized that Jesus is more interested in who they are and not what they do, they'd find the burden is easy and the yoke is light. And finally, I just want to say time with Jesus leads to beautiful service for Jesus. And so I'd never want to give the impression that I'm like, hey, work harder, do better. I'm like, no, I just, if you could just listen to Jesus, if we could all just listen to Jesus and spend time with Jesus, the work becomes light, the burden becomes easy, and it becomes a privilege and a joy because we're doing what Jesus has created us anew to do. So I don't want there to be this legalistic religion like go and do this, go and do that, go and do that. I just want to say, listen to Jesus. Make space in your life to hear the prompting of the Spirit so you can do what you were called and created anew in Christ to do. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we live in an incredibly wealthy society. And sometimes some of us who are you know, maybe not at the top end of that wealth spectrum in our society feel lack. And I don't, I don't want to diminish those who are feeling like, like life is difficult right now. Because truly, Lord, there is, there is some hardship for some of our people. And so, Lord, I pray you'd provide for them. I pray that you would open up doorways for them to have all that they need. But, Lord, I also know that sometimes our, our perspective is skewed what we think about most, where we spend our time, what we fixate on is not the things that you would have us think about or fixate on. They're things that, that don't bring joy to us. And so Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bring joy to us as we think about what it looks like to serve you. As we think about what a privilege it is to be servants of your kingdom, I pray you'd fill us with joy at the privilege of working with you, of being co-heirs with you in the kingdom of God, of being ambassadors and priests to this world. So Lord Jesus, empower us to live the way you have created us anew to live. Renew our minds with your truth and lead us into all good things as we serve you and love you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.